This episode of the Bonsai Network podcast is brought to you by ASAN Bonsai. ASAN is a full-service bonsai nursery located just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. To schedule a visit to ASAN, head over to www.asan.com. That's www.eisei-en.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Bonsai Network podcast. This time around, we're doing something a little bit different. I was asked to do an interview uh, by a friend of mine, Assis, from Mexico. He's part of the Saitama Puebla Bonsai Club. So this is the interview that I did with him. He asked me all sorts of questions about my background in Japan, my philosophy of bonsai, how I approach aesthetics and design of bonsai art. And uh, we had a few questions from, apparently I have a, a girl fan club in his club down there. So they asked me a, a few questions as well, uh, including how tall I am. So it was a, a fun interview. I hope you guys will enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here is my interview with Assis. So first thing first, uh, please, for the ones who actually don't know you, and it's pretty surprising, but in Mexico, not everybody looks to YouTube and not everybody speaks or understands English. What is your name, please? Uh, so my name is Bjorn Bjorholm. Uh, it's a, a Danish name. So my, uh, my dad's side of the family is from Denmark and my mom's side is from Finland. So if you want my full name, it's Bjorn Latvala Bjorholm. Oh my God, is yeah. that a special meaning to that name? <laughs> well, so my first name, it means bear, as in the animal. Uh, my middle name is actually Finnish uh, from Finland, so it, it translates to something like the apex of a tree. Uh, and then my last name, Bjorholm, means like the home of the bears or like Bear Island, for example. So if you wanted, if you wanted to combine you know, all, th all two languages and all three words into a sentence, it could be like bear at the top of a tree on Bear Island. <laughs> so you're the king of the bears. That's right, king of the bears. Okay. So what is it that you like so much about the Japanese and Chinese culture? Uh, that's a, a good question. There's a, a lot uh, to, to talk about there and to cover there. But, uh, you know, initially I, I fell in love with Japan through karate. Uh, when I was a kid, I was taking karate lessons after school. Uh, actually, I started when I was eight years old. So what's that, third or fourth grade? I uh, started every Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the gym uh, at school, after school, working with the karate teachers that come in and volunteer their time. Uh, so I fell in love with, with Japan through karate, and then I got in, interested in uh, architecture. I wanted to be an architect when I was a kid. So uh, my grandfather bought me a book on Japanese architecture and aesthetics. Uh, so I started studying and looking into that and, and then fell in love with the sort of gardening aspect of Japan from there uh, and then found bonsai through the Karate Kid movie. So it all sort of happened within a very short period of time. So I, I saw bonsai for the first time when I was 12 in the Karate Kid movies uh, and then got my first tree for my 13th birthday. Uh, but you know, from there it was uh, a matter of all oh, the language is interesting. I want to learn the language. So I started studying the language a little bit in high school uh, just as a hobby on the side. And then when I went to university, I actually studied Japanese as my major. Um, and then, you know, going to Japan for my third year of university to do a study abroad is when I really got the experience of, of the culture of Japan and the people of Japan, the food of Japan. Uh, there's just so much 
interesting there. It's it's hard to sort of pin it down to one specific thing, but uh, you know, just just in general, I think uh, you know the sort of long term uh, approach to things in Japan, a long term understanding of the history. Uh, of their own culture. Uh, when you go to Japan, you see a mix of new and old together. Uh, and they're very good at taking things from other countries like China, for example, adopting it into their own culture, and then uh, sort of figuring out a way to Japanify uh, that aspect of other cultures and turn it into something that's almost intrinsically Japanese. So uh, I, I would say that's one of the more interesting aspects of Japanese culture that I really like. Thank, thank you. So many Mexicans and Latin Americans actually think that you study horticulture at university. Is that no, okay? No, no, I didn't study horticulture at all. So I, I actually, in university, I studied, uh, it was a dual degree, a split degree. So I, it was a business degree and a Japanese language degree. Um, so technically, it was through the business school uh, at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, uh, which is, I think, our biggest state school uh, in Tennessee. Um, so I did that and then went on to get my uh, MBA, which is, you know, master's of business. Uh, so majority of my education is in business rather than horticulture. Actually, none of it's in horticulture. Although when I was at undergraduate, I, I worked for the botany department uh, as a part time job uh, after classes in the evenings. Um, I would do menial tasks for the, the botany department. Uh, and I forget the name of the professor. He's a pretty well-known uh, botany professor, but he sort of took me under his wing and thought my hobby was fascinating. So I got to learn quite a bit from him, even though it wasn't part of my formal education. Okay, so it's surprising to see that a businessman is actually going for the bonsai culture, bonsai <laughs> thing. How come that happened? Uh, so the, probably the biggest influence was uh, well, both my grandfather and my mother. Uh, both of them uh, were successful in business uh, and sort of told me growing up that, you know, if you get a business degree, you can use it for just about anything. So if you want to do bonsai, you have to understand how the business works if you want to be successful uh, and, and operate a business. I mean, bonsai is a business, so you have to understand how, how the market works, uh, how to insert yourself into the market, where you should insert yourself into the market, how to deal with clients, how to do the accounting, the finances, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, my recommendation for most people would be to get a, a general business degree because it's going to help you out with pretty much everything else in your life. Oh, that's a good point. Surprising now, though. Um, you are a very well-known bouncy artist, and everybody thinks from this side of the world that you actually study music or poetry or philosophy or something <laughs> like that. It's like you are like a, a god of bonsai because you actually give for free your knowledge on bonsai U and the series of uh, the bonsai art in Japan. So they don't actually understand how come you give your knowledge for free. So how is that uh, working for you? Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a different business model, I think, than, than most people were used to. I remember growing up as a kid, um, I had several bonsai teachers over the years, uh, some really, really good, very, very talented teachers. Uh, but their business model back then, you know, there really wasn't the internet at that time. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, 12, 13 years old, it was just starting to emerge. You know, you were just starting to see like bonsai forums pop up online here and there, but there was very limited information. So I think, you know, back in, in those days, the idea was that you sort of hoard the information, you keep the information to yourself. And when you have classes and students come, you only give, say, maybe 20% or 10% of the information so that the next time they have to come back to get the next 10% and the next 10%. So it's, it's that type of business model. Whereas for me, having gone and studied in Japan, uh, I realized that there's so much information 
Uh, I mean, just too much to process that you might as well put that information out there. It betters the bonsai community in general, but there's so much information to give that no matter how many bonsai you videos I do or, you know, the bonsai art of Japan or the free information online, it's never going to be enough. I mean, there's still tons and tons of nuance uh, and, and variations and variables that you have to deal with because we're all in different climates with different species, uh, different growth habits, different growing patterns. So, you know, it's, it, it's one of those things where I feel like if I give out all of the information, uh, you know, it builds a brand for me, number one, but it's also, you know, there's so much more information to be giving that, you know, if people want to come and actually study with me at my nursery for our intensive classes, they're still going to pick up a ton more information being here uh, rather than just sitting and watching it online. So, you know, it, it may seem like there's a lot of information that I put out there, but relative to what's still available and still in my head, it's, uh, you know, a, a few percentage points and that's about it. Okay. So uh, do you consider yourself as a bonsai master? I don't know. I, I never really liked that term, uh, bonsai master. Because when you say master, it sort of implies that, that you've mastered something, uh, you know, that you know all aspects of it. But I still learn new things all the time. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was talking to a friend of mine, Yannick Kigan, last week on my podcast, uh, the Bonsai Network podcast. And we were talking about the benefit of having students who study with me or study with him, but those same students will also go study with like Danny Hughes, for example, of Ginkgo Bonsai, or my students may go out to like Boone's place in California or Michael Hagedorn's place in Portland. Each of those teachers has a different approach or a different set of knowledge or a set of skills that I can also learn from uh, as well. So, you know, I think that's, that's one big benefit of, uh, you know, being open and trying to learn uh, new things from people. And those techniques I bring back to my nursery, they, they teach me those things. So I'm learning from my students, they're learning from me. Everybody's knowledge is growing and getting better. Okay, so what do you think uh, is the most representative aspect of your bonsai career, your technique, your horticultural knowledge uh, acquired in Japan or your artistry? Uh, that's a good question. I think, you know, if you wanna be uh, let's just say if you want to be successful in bonsai all around, you have to be able to do all of those things. Um, from my perspective, I think that uh, bonsai is mostly technical, uh, mostly uh, mechanical, uh, mostly science-based. Uh, and then the art aspect of it is, I don't know, maybe, maybe 20% uh, is, is the actual aesthetic and art aspect of it. And, and in my opinion, the techniques themselves uh, over time are going to yield or give you that final product, which is the aesthetic, beautiful, artistic uh, outcome that you want in the tree. So bonsai is an emergent art, in my opinion. Uh, the art emerges from the application of technique year after year after year. So, that, you know, there, there is definitely an element of understanding, you know, uh, design in, in space, basically. Um, you know, and some people, you know, can paint really, really well. Like you got Rembrandt who can paint really well and you've got, uh, you know, Bob Ross who can paint really well and he can teach really well as, as well. And he can teach you that mixing, you know, yellow and blue paint is going to give you a green color paint, but he can't necessarily teach you to paint like he paints. You know, your art is not necessarily going to end up looking like his. Uh, so it's a similar situation in bonsai. It is art. There's that 20% aspect at the end. That's that end result that is art. And you have to have an eye for that and an understanding that, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, if you do these techniques correctly, you cut off the right branches, you move things in the right place, that you'll end up with an aesthetic design that you desire. 
Um, so, you know, for me, there's, there's a word in Japan called shokunin, uh, which translates to craftsman, uh, which in the West has not necessarily a negative connotation, but people don't view it as, uh, they view it separate and apart from an artist. Whereas in, in Japan, that word, it all sort of blends together to some degree. So the craftsman in understanding how to do the right techniques, whether that's, uh, you know, woodblock printing or uh, lacquerware uh, or kimono making or bonsai or ikebana, you have to understand the basic techniques first and then doing it over and over and over and over again is going to yield you the right result at the end or the desired result at the end. And, and bonsai is no different. So we are talking about the dichotomy between an artist and an artisan, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, craftsman, uh, shokunin could be craftsman or could be artisan, you know, somewhere, kind of a mix of the two. Uh, because like I said, bonsai is a lot of, of technical work and mechanical work as well. So you have to understand uh, those aspects of it to get that final result. Okay, so do you think that the previous aesthetic sensibility like music or painting is a prerequisite to study and actually learn bonsai? Not necessarily, but I, I definitely think it probably helps add uh, you know, some, some additional element there. Um, you know, so for example, if you, if you go back and look at my work early in my apprenticeship, um, you know, every nursery is slightly different in Japan. Every teacher is going to be slightly different and every teacher is going to have a different aesthetic preference. So if you go back and look at my work early in my apprenticeship in Japan, my teacher, Fujikawa-san, he wanted me to focus on wiring every single branch, making every line perfect, perfectly flat, uh, almost, uh, plastic looking, like fake looking, right? But the idea was for me to understand the mechanics of how to make that. And then over time to figure out how to use less wire to get a better, more pleasing, uh, maybe more natural uh, looking, uh, natural but refined looking final result to the tree. Uh, so, you know, understanding that is, is definitely good, but taking things like, you know, music, understanding, uh, you know, uh, if you can read music, for example, uh, it's, it's like language, you understand then how to put all of that together to create a song. And maybe your songs are very simplistic to begin with, but over time, you know, you're able to, uh, you know, uh, figure out how to, to change the tempo, for example, use some sort of weird time signature, for example, uh, and create something that, that is like in bonsai, more aesthetically pleasing to the ear in the case of music or in bonsai, you know, more aesthetically pleasing to the eye, which tends to be a bit more of a, a natural but refined type look rather than that plasticky look. So I think, yeah, there's definitely some overlap uh, between the arts for sure. Okay, so do you think that uh, anyone can learn bonsai as you did? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think, uh, I, well, I don't think it's necessary for people to do a full apprenticeship in Japan to be good at bonsai. Um, and I don't think it's necessary to do an apprenticeship at all to be good at bonsai. Some people are uh, genuinely artistically talented. Uh, it's just like in painting as well. People can, can look at a painting that somebody else has done. They can copy that without learning the techniques at all. And then they can create their own art that's just as good as the original artist's work. Uh, so it's, it's similar in bonsai. I have uh, people that I've worked with all over the world who've never even been to Japan never set foot in Japan, never studied with anybody, but maybe they come to a workshop of mine or maybe they put a tree in an exhibition that I'm judging, for example, uh, and it's something that's just mind-blowing. It's incredible, and they've done all the work themselves. Uh, and a lot of those people have put in the time and effort studying on their own uh, to get that good, and some people are just naturally talented and gifted 
with the plants uh, and with, with creating art. So it's not necessary to do an apprenticeship. And there are plenty of people, I think, that uh, easily have the skills uh, and the artistic creativity uh, to be successful in bonsai or at least create beautiful bonsai art. Okay, so have you ever been in Mexico to any bonsai exhibition, convention, or anything like that? Uh, I've not been for any conventions before, but I've been down to uh, Toluca, uh, just yeah, just outside of uh, Mexico City, and I've been to Mexico City a couple of times as well uh, to work with some groups doing uh, workshops and whatnot. Uh, and actually, I'm scheduled to come next August uh, back to Mexico City uh, to work with a group there again. Okay, so what do you think about bonsai in Mexico, according to what you saw? Uh, so I think Mexico is just a little bit behind uh, the U.S. right now uh, in terms of the, the skill level and the quality of material uh, that people are making. But I look at Mexico right now like the States was maybe 10 years ago. So, you know, within a 10-year period, say from, you know, 2000, uh, we'll say like 2008, 2009 till now, uh, you know, so 11, 12 years, The change in quality in the States has been tremendous. Uh, and that, that has a lot to do with people who have gone to Japan, done apprenticeships, brought the skills and the knowledge back. It also has to do with the internet, people being able to have access to good information or good quality uh, photos and videos of trees uh, from around the world and then figuring out how to do that with our own material here. Uh, Mexico is kind of like the States was, you know, back in say 2006, 2007. So just a few years behind, but it seems like there's a lot of good quality material that can be collected in Mexico. Uh, like for example, uh, I work a lot with one seed junipers, uh, it's juniperus monosperma. Uh, they actually grow as far South as, uh, I believe it's, uh, Chihuahua in Mexico. So you can collect those down there and there's some absolutely fantastic uh, examples of those that we have in the garden here, but I'm sure you guys have the same quality down there as well. Um, there's probably ash juniper, all sorts of other uh, junipers, uh, pinion pines, for example, I would imagine grow down where you guys are. Uh, so a lot of good stuff that just hasn't been tapped into yet. Okay. So do you know any Mexican bonsai professional? Mexican bonsai professionals. Yeah, I know uh, Hugo. Uh, Zamora, yeah. Actually, I, I just talked to him yesterday or the day before on uh, Facebook Messenger. So he was just checking in with me, seeing how things were going up here. Uh, so I've worked, worked with him quite a bit. I did. Uh, uh, I see I see him in Japan almost every year when I'm over there. And then uh, I worked with him at his facility in Mexico City uh, a few years back. And then uh, I've done demos with him in different parts of the world as well. Okay. So... Um about the technical aspect. What is the most difficult aspect uh, of creating uh, or designing bonsai, tree or shrub? Most difficult aspects, uh, you know, I would say there, there are a couple layers to it. So of course you've got, uh, you know, if you're taking raw material, it could be Yamadori collecting material, or it could be a shrub or something from your local garden store. There's the aspect of figuring out the bone structure to the tree uh, that's very, very difficult. And then on top of that, there's the aspect of long-term development, like we talked about before, thinking 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line. Most people, I don't know what it's like uh, with the culture in Mexico, but in the United States, everything here is very short-term oriented. Most people are thinking, you know, six months to maybe three years out. That's about it. Nobody's thinking 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line. So when I go and do a demo or a workshop and I start talking about those long-term timelines, people start freaking out. They're like, how old am I going to be at that? I'm going to be 70 years old. I don't even know if I'll be doing bonsai at that point. But you have to be thinking that far out because the techniques that you apply now are going to manifest themselves in a, a good quality tree if they're done correctly 10 years or 20 years down the line. 
Um, so out of all of those things, you know, I would say that the time aspect is actually the most difficult to convey to people, uh, even more so than the initial bone structure setup of a tree. Okay, so what is the essential techniques, if any, that a novice enthusiast needs to master or to know in order to actually make a good bonsai, a good looking bonsai? Yeah, so, you know, I would, I would say that the number one thing is the horticultural techniques. Um, you know, we're working with living plant material. If the plant is dead, obviously you can't turn it into a bonsai. You might as well throw it away. So it's got to be a living, a living thing. Uh, it's got to stay alive. So mastering the horticultural aspects is absolutely primo number one. Um, so figuring out, you know, what stage your tree is in, if it's uh, you know very early stage, if it's weak, if it's unhealthy, if it's in development, there are going to be certain techniques and certain horticultural uh, things that you need to apply to your trees in that stage. And then eventually they move into more of a refinement stage. So the techniques, the, how you fertilize the trees, how you water the trees, how you prune them is going to change. So understanding those aspects first is absolutely super important. And then, of course, the mechanics uh, of applying wire, for example, or the mechanics of pruning, timing for pruning. Uh, that's all very important as well. And then I'd say the last thing you need to focus on is the aesthetic uh, element of it. You've got to master those basic horticultural and mechanical techniques first, and then you can move into the, the more aesthetic uh, understanding. It's like I said with, you know, like lacquerware, for example, knowing how many coats of lacquer you have to put on, uh, you know, a piece of lacquerware that you're creating is going to yield you better results in the end. You have to understand that. You have to understand the thickness of that lacquer, how to, how to brush it on, uh, you know, how to apply the shell into the lacquer to create the beautiful art. That stuff comes a little bit later. Okay. So, uh, are there any shortcuts in bonsai? I mean, can you skip something when you are learning it? Well, so I would say, you know, there's, there are techniques that are going to get you results faster than other techniques. Uh, so, you know, in terms of calling those a shortcut, I think that's fine. But, um, you know, I think people focus too much on the art aspect of it right from the get-go. And that's what ends up causing people to uh, create poor quality bonsai. Uh, they jump the gun. They put the cart before the horse. They put the art before the, the technical and horticultural aspects. And you end up with mediocre looking art and also unhealthy trees uh, at the same time so and i'll debate anybody on <laughs> on the quality of art there is good art and there is bad art there's i think there's i think there's objectively good art and objectively bad art uh, i've seen a lot of bad art not just in bonsai but you know in, in art in general uh, you know, and, and art that's in, in museums as well, particularly modern art. I've got a big beef with modern art <laughs> myself, but, uh, you know, setting that aside, I, I think, you know, there are some shortcuts, but it's more on the speed with which you can apply those techniques and get good quality results, not skipping techniques. So the key factor is patience. Patience, 100%. Okay. So uh, most of the bonsai knowledge comes in Mexico comes from uh, John Naka's book. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of that book? So John Naka's book was really, really good for the time that it was created. Um, you know, which I guess it was, was it written in the 50s or 60s? Some, something like that. Yeah, so a very, very long time ago. Uh, not long after World War II. Uh, so there wasn't really any good information out there. And a lot of the guys who were, uh, you know, Japanese born and then immigrated to the States or maybe first generation born in the United States, uh, some of them didn't speak English that well. Um, 
you know, so to in order to create, not that John Naka didn't speak English, well, he spoke English just fine, uh, but a lot of those people, you know, needed a way to convey bonsai art very uh, simply in a very simple form, uh, in a very easy to understand form. So his book did a very good job of that, you know, figuring out basic styles, uh, you know, basic techniques uh, in terms of pruning or wiring to get that aesthetic result. Uh, but the problem was with that book, there was no nuance to step outside of those styles. Um, you know, and if you ever go to Japan, for example, you go to the Kokufu or the Taikon Ten, we take tours to those exhibitions every year. Uh, every time we take a group there, without fail, uh, many people in the group will say, I, I, I noticed that all of the trees break all of the rules in John Naka's book, or they break all of the rules that I read that you have to follow to create beautiful bonsai. So people misunderstand those rules, thinking that you have to follow those rules. Uh, but they're, they're just meant to convey a simple uh, understanding of bonsai art. And then from there, you can, you can branch out um, and develop uh, you know, better, more aesthetically pleasing art. So you know, inverse taper is not necessarily a bad thing. You don't have to have the first branch on the outside of the first curve you know, and do like a spiral up the tree. That's not necessary. Crossing branches are okay. Um, you know, inverse taper in the branches is okay. Uh, trees leaning back, trees leaning forward. There's all sorts of variations there. Um, so conveying that in a book is almost impossible, which is why I think, uh, you know, the YouTube videos, for example, or online tutorials where you can actually see the trees, you know, in video form, see the three-dimensional view of the tree gives you a whole different perspective on, on breaking those rules. So, um, according to that, uh, can you say that you, the U S is a split uh, between Yuji Yoshimura and John Naka? or it is entirely covered by John Naka knowledge? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of overlap between the two of those guys in terms of uh, how they taught and their aesthetic approach uh, to Bontai. John Naka, it seemed like he was a little bit more uh, into the, uh, you know, sort of not, I guess you could say rule-based uh, format. Uh, Yuji Yoshimura seemed to be a little bit more, uh, not whimsical, but kind of outside of the box, just a little bit. Um, but the, you know, those guys were teaching in the States in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and into the 90s as well, but they were getting quite old at that point. Um, you know, and, and during the, the 60s and 70s in particular, uh, even in Japan, the quality of trees in Japan really wasn't that great. So for example, if you go back and look at the Kokofu books from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, decent quality trees, particularly in the 50s, the, the quality was quite low. You get to the 70s, it gets a little bit better. And then in the 1980s, the quality completely transforms within a five to eight year period. It's very, very short. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. The economy got really good. So there was more money that people were willing to spend on trees. So all of these different nurseries were trying to figure out a way to make their trees better. You had, uh, you know, one in a, a hundred year people like Masahiko Kimura, uh, or Kawabe, for example, coming up with, or, or Ebihara coming up with really good techniques um, that, that yielded really good results in a very short amount of time. Uh, so all of that combined, you see the, the increase in quality there. Well, all of the techniques that, that John Naka and Yuji Yoshimura and a lot of the first generation or second generation Japanese were teaching back in those days, that information stayed stuck and it kept being taught through the 90s into the early 2000s. Uh, and then once people from the States in the 2000s started going to Japan and studying and bringing back the new techniques that were already 20 to 30 years old at that point, you know, they'd been developed in the 80s, brought those techniques back to the States. We also in the States, like I said, in the last 10 years have seen a, a tremendous increase in quality here. 
So it was just a, a delay, a lag time uh, in getting those techniques here. Um, so nowadays, you know, it's not that we've set John Naka's techniques aside or Yuji Yoshimura's techniques aside. All of that still builds to the general knowledge uh, around bonsai in the States and the general aesthetic here. Uh, but we're using what, what's called Gendai bonsai or contemporary bonsai techniques that are more recently developed in Japan now. So it's just taking things one step forward in the, the evolution. Okay, so if we are saying that actually there are no rules to bonsai or laws to bonsai uh, how come uh, a novice enthusiast on bonsai could actually tell if what they're doing, uh, he or, or she, is actually okay uh, to get that end result? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, the problem, the main problem is uh, it's semantics. It's telling people that these are rules. Uh, what you should be telling people, like with John Naka's book, for example, it's still a great book for beginners. So with a book like that, it's good to say these aren't rules. These are just general starting guidelines. Uh, and then from there, you, you sort of branch out. So uh, I think it's a matter of, of conveying the information in that book uh, a little bit better uh, and, and telling people that it's not not rules, but more guidelines. Uh, and it's not I, I don't like the idea of, oh, they're, they're rules and rules are meant to be broken. It's not like that. It's they're, they're general guidelines. You know, you follow these to, to get yourself started. So you understand certain principles like, you know, if you want to uh, have better taper in the tree, uh, you want to find the angle for that, the widest base, you know, a, a general branch structure in the tree is going to yield you a pretty good result. But you could go beyond that uh, by stepping outside of those guidelines. Um, so, you know, whoever your teachers are in Mexico or if you bring in professionals from overseas, um, you know, it's, it's good, I think, in the club scene, for example, down there to start new beginners uh, with John Naka's book, for example, but make sure you're explaining uh, that those techniques are more guidelines. And then when you bring in professionals from overseas or professionals from Mexico, they can then understand that, okay, this is why this professional is not doing it exactly like I learned it in the book. So, do you, well, uh, maybe... I can say that you recommended a book, Peter Warren's book, a bonsai. So can you change or migrate your knowledge from NACAS to Peter Warren's book? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Peter Warren's book is an updated version of Harry Tomlinson's book, uh, which was the, the RD uh, home handbook on bonsai, which is actually, I think, the first book that I ever bought. Uh, on bonsai, and I, I used to carry it around school and read it all the time. It was my favorite book. Uh, but the, the new updated information in Peter's book is a very good starting point uh, for people. So uh, actually, that's that's a great point. That, that would be maybe even a better book uh, at this stage than John Naka's or a complementary book to John Naka's to have both of those uh, for people to understand. And then from there, they can transition into uh, you know other books. Like, for example, I've got... Michael Hagedorn's book here, Bonsai Heresy. <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is there's no real photos in here. There's a few photos, but not many. Um, it's a very dense book, but the idea of this book is to dispel the myths around bonsai, uh, and that includes horticultural myths and design myths as well. Uh, so I recommend that people check that out, and that would be a good book. Once you get through Peter's book, you can read this book, and then that'll explain uh, you know, how far outside of those bounds that you can start stepping. Okay, thank you very much. So, um, it is possible to practice bonsai not using specialized tools? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You don't have to buy uh, bonsai-specific tools. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just posted a video this morning uh, on my YouTube channel about bonsai tools. Uh, we sell Kikawa tools at, at my nursery here and on our website. 
which are you know a Japanese brand tool, very high quality bonsai specific tools manufactured in Japan. Uh, you don't have to have those tools necessarily to do bonsai. You need to have the equivalent of those tools though. Uh, so for example, uh, we use you know wire on our trees. So you wanna find a wire cutter that has a snub nosed end on it. You can find those at, at home stores. Uh, they're probably not gonna hold up as well with copper wire as what we use uh, specifically for bonsai but they'll at least get you through you know, a number of years and learning uh, until you feel comfortable maybe investing in a better set of tools. Same thing with pruning shears. Uh, the pruning shears that we have on our website, they're designed to be able to prune large branches and small twigs, uh, but you can use regular old scissors. Uh, you're gonna be a little bit limited in the size of branch that you can cut off with those, but they'll get you through the learning process to begin with. So um, same thing with pliers. You don't have to buy gin pliers. You can use regular old pliers, uh, but the beautiful thing about gin pliers is they come to a point at the end. So when you're starting to do guy wiring uh, or you know really fine work on trees, you're gonna need to maybe switch over to a real gin plier at that point. Uh, talking about tools, what is your favorite bonsai tool? Favorite tool? Yeah, if I had to choose just one tool, it would be the, the snub nose wire cutters, the standard wire cutters that we use. Uh, I use those tools obviously to cut wire, but I also cut branches with them. Uh, I'll also, you know, if you use them properly, you can actually use them as a plier as well. Uh, so I can pull and twist guy wires with those. So if I'm doing a demonstration, uh, I have my toolkit with me, but the wire cutters I use for probably 80% of the work on the tree. Uh, that way I'm not having to switch back and forth between different tools. It just makes life a lot easier. Okay, so uh, a lot of uh, people here are asking if the bonsai is made in a demonstration actually leaves or dies? So my goal when I do a demonstration is to 100% make sure that the tree survives after I do the demo. Uh, so if you watch some of my demonstrations, the before and after on a lot of those trees may not be as uh, big or as impressive as some other artists, but my goal is to take it to a certain degree at this stage, make it look cool, make it look good, so you get a good uh, transition uh, before and after, but also make sure that the tree survives. So um, I always try to explain that as I'm doing the demonstration. And that's actually one thing I, I don't like about doing demonstrations. I don't mind getting up in front of a crowd and talking uh, you know, and explaining the tree, but it's finding that balance between wowing the crowd and making sure that the tree survives afterwards. So. Uh, from what I understand, I, I don't think any trees that I've done for demonstrations have died afterwards, um, or at least not quickly afterwards. It could've, they could have died from you know, improper care, possibly. Uh, but that, that's also the problem, too. A lot of those trees get raffled off after the, the demo, so you never know who gets the tree. And what's funny is I'd say probably 50% of the time, maybe even more, uh, a new beginner, you know, first time coming to a club meeting, that person will win the tree. <laughs> So it's, all, it's always worrisome uh, when someone like that wins the tree because they don't necessarily have the horticultural skills to keep it alive afterwards. So when you do or design or make a bonsai tree or shrub or maybe herb, uh, do you consider them as your children? Or is there a relationship between you and your trees? Yeah, I would say there, there is. Um, you know, making sure that it stays alive is my number one goal. Uh, so... I'm constantly thinking about, you know, even if I'm, I'm on the road somewhere uh, or, you know, I have to go into town for something and it's a hot day here in the summer, I'm constantly thinking about the watering of that tree. Okay, did I water it enough? I got to get back by this specific time to make sure that it doesn't uh, uh, wilt, for example, or branches don't start dying on the tree. 
Uh, so it's always in the back of my mind. So this the nice thing about having an apprentice now. Uh, I'm, I'm in here now doing the, the interview with you and he's outside watering the trees. So it's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, besides Kishi Fujikawa-san, what other bonsai masters or artists do you consider an, as, as an influence to your work? Uh, I would say uh, in Japan, uh, of course, uh, Masahiko Kimura, uh, everybody refers to him as the boss. Uh, you know, he's the, the big guy. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, everything, I would say with the conifers that we work on now, uh, you know, 80, 90% of the techniques that we use for coniferous material, he developed back in the 70s and 80s for the most part. Uh, you know, from big bending to... Uh, fertilization, how we approach that to putting on, uh, you know, heavy growth on the trees to major bends in the trunk, for example, all of those techniques really came from him. Um, aesthetically in Japan, I prefer uh, Shinji Suzuki's work. Um, it, you know, there's something very special about how he works on plants. It's very, very hard to mimic uh, and do yourself. So, you know, th there's a, a softness to the touch that he puts on plants and it yields just a beautiful result right from the get-go. Uh, so I, I really appreciate his work uh, quite a lot as well. Okay, so let me see. Do you think that actually Kimura Masahiko is the best bonsai artist ever? Ooh, it's hard to say. I mean, techniques-wise, uh, most definitely uh, in terms of, of you know, taking what we thought we could do with plants to what we now know we can do with plants. He is absolutely the number one guy. Uh, you know, if you've ever been to his garden or his nursery, it is spectacular. There's no leaf uh, out of place. There's no uh, dirt on the ground. It's just immaculate. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, but in terms of uh, aesthetics and the way I feel when I see certain trees uh, and the general setup of, of a nursery, I would say Shinji Suzuki's nursery to me, uh, is top-notch. Uh, there's just there's something special about it. It's hard to put into words uh, unless you've ever been there. And the only problem with his nursery is that it's so far out in the middle of nowhere, it's very difficult to get to. Uh, so I've only actually visited his place, I think, once. Uh, and that was with Fujikawa-san. We went on a buying trip around Japan a few years ago. I actually featured it in a, a vlog episode on my YouTube channel. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I filmed it on my, uh, um, cell phone camera. They didn't want me to bring my big camera in. So I filmed on my cell phone camera, but absolutely special, uh, spectacular nursery. Um, so, you know, like I said, aesthetically, I prefer his work, but techniques wise, uh, you know, Mr. Kimura, everything we do now is, is really from him. Okay. So is there an actual difference between tenjing and bonsai? Uh, so, you know, the, the characters, uh, it's actually, well, so Penjing, the characters for Penjing are slightly different than the characters for, for Bonsai, the kanji characters. Uh, Pensai uh, is identical uh, to Bonsai in terms of the characters, but the aesthetic result uh, between the two is, is quite different. Um, in the past, uh, really up until I'd say probably the last 10 years or so, there was a really stark difference between uh, Pensai or Penjing and Bonsai. Um, so in China, it was more on sort of the overall impression that you get from the tree rather than the details of the plant. So there wasn't a whole lot of focus on, for example, with deciduous trees, uh, ramification development. Uh, it was more about, does it look natural? Uh, you know, does it, is it just sort of speak to you as a scene from nature, particularly penjing the water and land penjing, uh, from like Brook Jiao, for example. 
uh, in his book, Penging Worlds of Wonder, stuff like that. You know, not a lot of focus on the ramification and the details, but the overall impression was very, very important and very cool. Uh, whereas now in China, you know, it's just like Japan in the 1980s. You see an increase in the economy there. There's more money. People are willing to spend more money on trees, uh, penjing and bonsai and pensai. Uh, so the quality, the focus on quality has increased tremendously over the last 10 years. So what's really cool is a lot of those water and landscape penjing that were created back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Nowadays, the focus is taking those trees, not taking them apart, keeping them exactly the same, but focusing on the ramification, for example. So you're starting to see a quality of ramification on those water and landscape penjing that matches the quality of deciduous trees, say in the kokofu, for example, in Japan. So it's almost like a blending of the two styles. They're sort of converging uh, together uh, aesthetically, at least in terms of the, the focus on details. Okay, so uh, do you have a definition of your own of about bonsai culture art or technique um yeah i i, I did a an online uh, tutorial an online class with bonsai empire a few years ago it was in our advanced class where i, I talked about uh what i view as the the definition of bonsai um you know so there are certain elements that have to go into it uh, to make something a bonsai you know you can take a tree from nature put it in a pot uh, or you take a, a tree from the, the landscape uh, around your house or from the local home store and put it in a pot, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bonsai. Uh, you know, there needs to be, uh, there needs to be a goal uh, to create the most aesthetically pu pleasing view uh, from one particular view. It doesn't mean that the tree has to have necessarily just one front. Uh, it can be multiple fronts on trees, uh, but in general, we try to pick out the best quality features of the tree and show them off uh, through pruning, through wiring, uh, you know, choosing a pot that aesthetically matches that particular plant. The tree, like I said before, has to be alive. It can't be a dead <laughs> tree, uh, although portions of it can be dead for aesthetic reasons. Um, you know, and then, like I said before, it's a combination of, I'd say probably 70, 80% technical, horticultural, mechanical work and 20 to 30% art. Um, so all of those things kind of combined together make a bonsai a bonsai. Okay. So do you see yourself doing bonsai for the rest of your life? Actually, yeah. I was, I was talking to my wife last night about it. Um, I was just telling her that, you know, we're putting so much effort into the nursery here. We've only been open for two years at this point. Uh, although I've been doing bonsai professionally for, if you include my apprenticeship, uh, since 2008, so like 12 years uh, at this point. Um, you know, so having that 12 years under my belt, and I'm only, I'm 34 right now. Um, so doing this for the rest of my life, you know, if I were to step out of it, say I decided, you know, at like age 55 or something to, to step out of bonsai, I would feel like, like the previous, you know, 30 years had been wasted. You know, like like whatever legacy I'm trying to build with my art and with people uh, enjoying what I create or learning from me, uh, it would feel like a waste. So absolutely, I will keep doing it for the rest of my life. It may be in a different capacity. You know, I, I don't know how long we'll do the nursery here. Could be 30 years, could be, you know, until I die. Uh, but in any case, we're going to keep this going. And then, you know, if that changes and we move on to something else, it will still revolve around bonsai. Absolutely. Okay. So, um are you seeing a uh, booming in the bonsai culture in the U.S. Um, and also the quality? Is it increasing or decreasing or is it just a stop? Uh, I think it's uh, increasing tremendously. So 
like I said, over the last 10 to 12 years, the quality has shot up. Um, and there are more people now going to Japan to do apprenticeships uh, than there have ever been. Um, as a matter of fact, at Fujikawa-san's nursery, there's uh, a guy from Florida who's there and another guy from Canada who are studying there. There's Aichien Nursery. I think they have four or five foreign apprentices. Um, you know, Mr. Kimura's nursery, he's got foreign apprentices. Suzuki-san, he's got foreign apprentices. Um, you know, all sorts of different nurseries. Daijuen, they've got an apprentice, I think, from Australia at this point. Uh, so, you know, those people coming back teaching, of course, the quality is shooting up. Um, and I, I think the reason that those people are going there to study is because they see an opportunity, uh, you know, not only to do what they love, but also to make a living at doing what they love, uh, which is super important. So and this is one reason why you don't see a lot of Japanese young people doing apprenticeships in Japan anymore, because there isn't really an economic opportunity in Japan to make good money doing bonsai. I don't think it's because people don't like bonsai. I just think that there's you know, not that business opportunity there. That basically sort of faded out uh, in the 90s for the most part, early 2000s. Uh, so it's, it's a saturated market in Japan. There's too many nurseries, uh, too many very famous nurseries. A lot of the trees that are really, really good, particularly the old collected trees, are being sold to China. So there's less and less good trees. Uh, you can't collect in the mountains anymore. It's illegal in most places to collect in Japan. So there's not an influx of new trees. The next generation is not taking over their parents' nurseries. So there's not a good supply of, uh, you know, good quality shohin trees, for example. Uh, so it's, it's starting to fade just a little bit, unfortunately. Uh, but in the States and in Europe, um, Europe is probably a little bit ahead of the States um, in terms of sort of reaching a high level and then peaking. Uh, but the States right now, we're still on an upward trend. Uh, and I think we will be for, you know, at least another decade or so. Okay, so you're telling that in Japan, bonsai is slowing down? It, it is, um, you know, for, for all of those reasons that I mentioned. And it's not because the professionals who do it are are liking it less and less. It's, it's because, you know... Like I said, the, the younger generation aren't uh, interested in it because they can't see a future in it. Uh, a lot of the younger generation, too, are much more interested in technology and instant gratification, just like everywhere else in the world. Uh, so things are kind of moving uh, in that direction to some degree. Uh, there are a few young ambassadors in Japan for bonsai. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in Kimbone Magazine, the, the big bonsai magazine in Japan, every month they have a, a little article that's put on by uh, a young Japanese girl. Uh, she's uh, part of an idol group, uh, I think a singing, singing group in Japan. Um, so she seems to be very interested in bonsai and, and trying to promote it to the younger generation to some degree. Uh, but it's difficult to get younger people involved in it. Whereas in the States, say 20 years ago, all of the clubs were all old people. And nowadays, there's a lot of young folks in clubs. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the internet and access to information. So do you think that actually in Japan, bonsai is going to disappear or die off? No, I don't, I don't think it'll die off. What I think will happen, um, you know, there's still, there still is a demand for bonsai in Japan. Otherwise, the industry would completely collapse. So there still is a demand for it. With the supply now moving to China, uh, you know, the Chinese coming in and buying all the good quality trees. And with a lot of those uh, production nurseries that were creating really good, say, shohin material or medium-sized material from cuttings or air layers uh, or field growing, a lot of those nurseries are slowing down and shutting down because the next generation doesn't want to take over. Well, as that supply shrinks over the next 20, 30 years, the demand will still be there. There will still be some demand there. So at some point, 
some entrepreneurial person uh, or people are going to see the opportunity to start creating that material again. As a matter of fact, I know a few of those people in Japan right now who see the market shrinking and see an opportunity to take that type of production that's shutting down and start doing it themselves. So I know three or four people that are doing that. And I would say probably in 20 to 25 years from now, as long as they're still in operation, which they should be, they will have that good supply of material and you'll see a, a rise again uh, in Japan. Okay, thank you. So, um, um, as Aizen means uh, always young or open to new things, I guess. <laughs> right. So, uh, what's next in your already successful bonsai career? Um, so right now uh, we're having a little bit of a problem with uh, the COVID-19 situation. So uh, the mayor of Nashville has shut the city down again. So we're basically can we've canceled all of our classes from the spring through the fall this year. Um, so we've switched our business model over a little bit more to online sales and also focusing on Bonsai U, uh, which is right now it's our free online platform on YouTube. Uh, so we're going to continue doing all of that through the rest of the year. And then in uh, January, this coming year, we're going to launch a, a, a pay-for version of Bontai U that uh, offers more interaction with me directly, question and answer sessions, uh, special videos behind the scenes. Uh, so all of that will be launched in January this coming year. Um, so we're shifting the business model a little bit over to that. I'm hoping, you know, all of this once hopefully they'll get a vaccine and then next spring we can start the classes up again. Uh, but for right now, the main focus is staying here. And I actually one sort of uh, blessing in disguise is that because of COVID-19, I had to cancel all of my travel. So this is the the first year I've been able to stay home essentially the, the whole year in in probably six or seven years. I was on the road for like 250 days a year for the last few years. So now I get to stay home. I think I'm, I'm annoying my wife more than, more than anything, but uh, it's nice to be home, wake up in my own bed, focus on building the, the trees here and building the nursery. Uh, the quality of the trees here at the nursery in the last three or four months since the quarantine started has increased tremendously. So uh, you're planning to coming to Mexico, you said in August? Uh, yeah, August of next year. Next year, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think about the future of uh, bonsai in Latin America? For example, Colombia, Puerto Rico, and uh, Venezuela. Uh, have you ever been there and saw, or actually saw, their work? Uh, so, the only other place in Latin America that I've been for bonsai was uh, Brazil. Uh, so, there are some really talented artists in Brazil and some really good material uh, that's being developed there. Uh, you know, and the, the climates down there, you're basically mirrored to the climates in the northern hemisphere up here. Uh, you know, in the high elevation mountains, there's got to be some really good material that's uh, collectible uh, all through Latin America, uh, all through South America. So uh, and, and with the talented artists that are there, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for them to take that material and then increase the quality. So uh, to me, it seems like the sky's the limit uh, in Latin America. I think you guys uh, you guys are probably next on the list to see an exponential increase in quality and in, in the bonsai market in general. Uh, and then after that, I'd say, uh, you know, Australia is moving in that direction. And then uh, maybe maybe Africa will come up at some point. <laughs> okay. We hope so. Yeah. So, um, so a part of uh, doing bonsai, do you actually do something else artistically like music, painting, sculpture? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. Uh, I play music, so I don't know if you can see. I got my guitar collection behind me here. 
I've got uh, my drum drum set, the electronic drum set over there. So my wife won't let me buy a real drum set because it's too loud. <laughs> so uh, I sit in here and, and play almost every day. Uh, I was actually in a, a rock band back uh, from late high school through my college years uh, at the University of Tennessee. We used to play dive bars all around Knoxville. Uh, so I've, I've just, you know, now that I'm home, I've gotten more opportunity to sit and play music. Uh, I haven't recorded anything yet. I'm trying to build build up to that a little bit. Uh, but th- those are my main two hobbies. And then I've, I've gotten into uh, lifting weights again lately, mostly to try to keep my back from going out when I pick up my heavy trees at the nursery. <laughs> yeah, so th- those are my main hobbies right now. So now to the fan questions, so to speak. Um, how can you actually put a price to a bonsai tree? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, in Japan, it's it's different. So in Japan, you know, you have a saturated market. There's a, essentially a, a value range depending on the size of the tree, the species of the tree, the quality of the movement, uh, you know, all sorts of characteristics like that. So you're a bit more limited in the price range that you can put on plants there. Uh, in the States, the market is wide open right now. Uh, so everybody's trying to figure out, you know, what, what people are willing to pay for trees, where we can mark the price on plants. Um, there's less high quality trees that are developed here right now. Uh, so those that are developed are going for much higher prices than they would, for example, in Japan or in Europe. Uh, eventually, of course, as more people set up nurseries in the States, you have more of a supply, that stuff will sort of even itself out to some degree. Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult to say, okay, this tree is worth this price. Some of it is a little bit uh, sentimental. Like if I have a connection with a tree that I think is just super special and I don't necessarily want to sell it, I'll put a ridiculous price on it just to keep it at the nursery. Um, but, you know, being a nursery, we have to keep in mind that, you know, it's a business. So I have to be able to move trees in and out uh, relatively quickly. So we try to set our price points at, I, I try to take Fujikawa-san's model basically and apply it to the material that we have here. So, you know, the disposable income is what people are going to pay for trees. They're going to, you know, uh, pay or use for their hobbies, basically. Um, So the disposable income in Japan is very similar to the disposable income in the States. So you don't really have a huge range to go way beyond the pricing of trees in Japan, necessarily, uh, because people aren't necessarily going to have that extra money beyond that to, to spend on those trees. So you have to keep that in mind. So, you know, the quality of material that we have here relative to the price somewhat similar to what Fujikawa-san would charge for those same kinds of trees in Japan, maybe with a little bit of a premium for really high quality stuff because it is still very rare here. So in here we are fixed to the Takonami pots, mm. but uh, do you consider Takonami pots are the best in the world or you move forward to the Chinese pots, ancient Chinese pots? Yeah, so I would say, uh, it's, it's difficult to say, the, the Tokoname pots, the, the artists in Tokoname have figured out over decades and decades what shapes, uh, what thickness, uh, you know, what colors, what textures, what depths, what sizes will work with the, the largest number of trees. So they're producing pots that are guaranteed to look good with your trees. Whereas if you look at pots that are made in the States right now, it's kind of all over the map. Uh, people focus maybe a little bit too much on the art aspect of it and not enough on whether or not that pot is going to actually fit a tree. Uh, and dimensions are very, very important. Uh, you know, thickness of the walls, how deep the pots are relative to how long they are, all of that's very important. So the artists in Tokoname have figured out exactly what dimensions work the best. And then they experiment with, you know, the coloration, the different glazes, things like that, maybe textures. Um, so it's very similar to people doing bonsai here. They focus too much on the art aspect first and not enough on the craftsmanship. Uh, and then you end up with a, a bad result. 
Uh, so tokoname pots are fantastic. I import tokoname pots to have them here. They work great with a large number of trees. Uh, the Chinese pots, you've got all sorts of different levels of Chinese pots. So the, the mass production pots, and most of these are made in uh, Yixing, which is not far from Shanghai. Uh, so the mass production pots, uh, some of them are very good quality. You'll have really high-end, good quality pots from kilns that have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, those pots are fantastic, just as good as the tokoname pots, uh, although the clay is different. The clay in China, uh, in that area, tends to be more of a purpley color, maybe a little bit more of a reddish color, uh, whereas the, the clay in tokoname is more of a brown color. Um, you know, so you get a little bit of a different texture, a little bit of a different, uh, you know, coloration, uh, natural coloration to the pots, but the quality is equally as good. Uh, and then you have the low end quality Chinese pots, which are good for, you know, production type trees if you're wanting to sell those, but I typically don't invest in those kind of pots. Um, and then you have these super high quality antique Chinese pots, like the, the Nakawatari pots, which are pots that are made between the year 1800 and 1911. Um, those pots are pretty readily available in Japan. They imported thousands of them back in the 80s when it was popular to do so. Uh, so there are a lot still left, but the Chinese are now buying those back. So the prices are going way up. Uh, but I, out of all the pots to work with, I love the Nakawatari pots the best. I mean, they're just, they're fantastic. The clay is a little bit rougher. Uh, you get a whole bunch of variations in color. The only problem with the, the Nakawatari pots is that they tend to be bowed on the bottom. So there's not a lot of, of uh, surface volume or volume rather, uh, uh, cubic volume for the, the soil to fit in. Um, and they also tend to be narrow front to back. So they're quite long, but they're skinny front to back. Um, so it could be difficult potting a tree uh, in those pots. So you typically only pot trees in Nakawatari pots for exhibition and then take them back out, put them in a, a training pot or a, just a standard uh, Chinese production pot uh, to, to grow and maintain them. So, um, and then the, there's something called the Kowatari pot, which is pre-1800. Those pots are very, very rare and they're incredibly expensive. Uh, I have one, one example of, of one of those here. Uh, at my nursery, Fujikawa-san gave it to me as a gift uh, just before I moved back to the States. So that was very, very cool of him. Uh, so I've got a really nice chojubai uh, planted in that one. Uh, but those, those pots, you know, minimum five, $6,000 on up to, there's some that are $100,000, $150,000 pots. Very, very expensive. Okay, so in Mexico, we are fixed to use aluminum wire to every tree. Mm -hmm. So are you tend to say that aluminum is better or copper is better? Which one do you recommend we use? Yeah, I would say, you know, aluminum is really good for deciduous and broadleaf material. Uh, it's softer, it's easier to apply. Uh, and the bark on those species tends to be uh, softer as well and tear more easily than conifers. Uh, and also, you know, with deciduous material and broadleaf trees, we're going to cut that wire off pretty quickly after we apply it somewhere in the neighborhood of one month to maybe three months, it comes off. Uh, whereas the copper wire is better for conifers. It holds better. You're going to leave that wire on much longer, sometimes, you know, one year to three years, maybe even longer, depending on the tree. Uh, and it holds much better. Uh, so it work hardens, you know, it's, it's annealed, so it's soft when you put it on. Uh, but as you're applying it, the cells uh, realign and it becomes very hard. So it stays stiff and keeps those branches in place. So copper wire for conifers is definitely a better option. Okay, so now to the girls' question, because we have a, a, a kind of a fan club here in Mexico. All right. So is, uh, how tall are you? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm six foot six, so I'm two meters tall. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite, quite tall. <laughs> okay, so uh, 
Why do you like death metal? Ah, yeah. I, I so I like uh, I like certain types of heavy metal. Uh, I don't like just the chugging type metal. I like very complicated, uh, very syncopated uh, heavy metal music. Uh, so I think when most people listen to metal, they just hear loud noises. Uh, but certain types of metal uh, are very, very syncopated. Very, uh, there's a lot of musicality to it. Uh, it's very difficult, like particularly the drummers. Uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with a lot of drummers uh, in metal because I can't drum like that. It's one of those things I want to try to get better at, but it's, it's out of my reach. Uh, so it's just the, the mind of people who create metal is very different than standard rock or pop or any other genre of music. Yes, and I actually think that you like uh, Joy Jorgensen of Slipknot. Yeah, so he's he's good. Uh, you know, to me, he's a little bit more down that sort of chugging. I'm not a huge Slipknot fan, to be honest. He's he's not a, he's technical, but it's not as syncopated. It's a lot of you know double bass, uh, you know, simple rhythms for the most part, just very fast, which doesn't interest me uh, much at all. Uh, I, I would be more into something like like Mike Portnoy, for example, uh, you know, from Dream Theater. They're not metal, but that style of drumming, insanely technical, uh, you know, very, very talented guy. Uh, there are a lot of other drummers that I'm blanking on right now that are they're much more technical. So I move more down that that route than Slipknot. So, um, um, so here some know you as uh, the Brad Pitt of Bonsai. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yes. And uh, do you see a resemblance every time you look at the mirror? Oh, my God. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, that, that article that you're talking about is from Architectural Digest. Uh, I did an interview with them a few years ago. Uh, and the, uh, the guy who interviewed me, uh, his name is Mitch, uh, Mitch Owens, really fantastic, nice guy. Uh, you know, very, uh, very interested in uh, like European style architecture, things like that. But he, he found it interesting that I was interested in bonsai. So uh, he wrote the article and put it up. But when he put it up, he didn't ask me if I was cool with the title. He just made the title and put it out. <laughs> so I saw that and I've been trying to live it down ever since. <laughs> okay, so uh, are you planning to ever write a book about your work or your life? Uh, maybe uh, 50, when you get 50, 55, 60, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was thinking about it, actually. Uh, I was thinking about writing a, a book about my experiences in Japan as an apprentice. Uh, as a matter of fact, the guy I was talking about earlier who wrote this book, Michael Hagedorn, he wrote uh, his original book was uh, called Postdated, and it was about his experiences in Japan as an apprentice. Uh, so I'd like to do something you know, along those lines, maybe a little bit different, a little bit more in-depth uh, than what he wrote. Because uh, I, I mean, I was in Japan for nine years, so I have a lot of a lot of experiences. Uh, I drank a lot of beer back in those days, so I, I've forgotten a lot of what happened. <laughs> but I, I did write a lot of it down in journals, so I can consult all of that. But at some point, I want to definitely put a book like that together. So, uh, any final suggestions, advices, or tips for the Latin Americans or especially Mexican enthusiasts? Yeah, I would say, you know, like I said before, focus on understanding the basics to begin with, uh, but also start collecting more. Start collecting more of your native material. Uh, you know, do it in an ethical way where you're asking permission from the landowners or you're getting permission from the government to go collect. Uh, try to focus on obviously keeping that material alive. Don't collect things that aren't going to survive. You know, be very uh, judicious about what you do decide to collect. Um, but that's what's that's what's increasing the quality of bonsai in the states so quickly right now is people are understanding that 
you don't have to work with Japanese black pines. You don't have to work with Shinpaku junipers. There are native equivalents that are as good or maybe even better than the exotic stuff from Japan. So start collecting that, start understanding or learning or experimenting with those trees and figuring out the horticultural techniques to yield you better results. And I think the, the quality level in Latin America will shoot through the roof if people start doing that. So the last question is about uh, actual soil. We are fixed uh, thinking that Akadama, uh, Kiryu, and Hyuga are the only possible uh, bonsai soils available. So is there any truth about this idea or? Yeah, so I, I, there, there are equivalents to those things that you don't, so you don't have to import, you know, that material necessarily from Japan. So, you know, Akadama is one of those things that it's really hard to replace. Uh, it's one of the best soil components you can get. Uh, so, you know, it, I would recommend that you continue to use Akadama. It holds a lot of moisture. It holds a fertilizer. It doesn't break down too quickly. It gives you a lot of drainage as well. Um, so it's a, it's got a, a bit of cation exchange as well. Um, so, you know, it, it interacts with the water, it interacts with the, the fertilizer. Um, so it's slightly organic if you want to call it that. Um, the other elements, Kiryu and uh, like Fujizuna, for example, there are, uh, equivalents of that in Mexico and in the United States. So you can switch out Fujizuna is just lava rock. So you can find locally sourced lava uh, that you can use for that. And then the Kiryu or Huga, uh, you can switch out for pumice. Now, if you don't have access to all of those elements, if you can choose just one soil component to use, you could use 100% pumice and have good results with your trees. Um, it's going to, you know, it is volcanic. It's going to provide a lot of aeration to your soil. It also holds quite a bit of water. I don't think it holds very much fertilizer. Um, so you, you're going to have to fertilize a bit more frequently uh, and a bit heavier to get the same results. But if you can't find any of those other elements, uh, you can find pumice for cheap. I know in the States we can buy a yard of pumice out of New Mexico uh, for $35. I mean, it's crazy cheap. So I'm sure you guys can source it down to Mexico as well. Okay. So thank you for your time, Bjorn. And and I know you had to say hello to someone who is going to watch you. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. It's, it's been fun, man. It's been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you asking me to do the interview. Okay, thank you. So see you next time. All right, sounds good, man. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Bonsai Network podcast. To have your questions answered in a future episode, please send them to podcast at bjornbjorholm.com. That's podcast at bjorn.com. B-J-O-R-H-O-L-M dot com.